This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. My, my teaching text is actually not one that was read this morning, so if you have your Bible with you, um, grab that. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles throughout the seats underneath, and you'll, you'll want to grab a Bible as we work through a teaching from Scripture. This is out of uh, Acts chapter 17. If you have one of the Res Bibles, that's page 926. If you have your own Bible, you're going to move pretty, pretty far through the Scriptures till near the end. Acts chapter 17, I'll be reading from verses 1 to 9 for our teaching text this morning, which focuses on Christ the King. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, is the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded. And they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews, and if you have an English standard version, you'll note that the note there is likely refers to Jewish leaders. It's an important distinction. The Jewish leaders were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they'd taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The word of the Lord. Let me paint two different scenarios. They come from stories and experiences that you all have told me that you have. So they don't reflect one particular one, but they're a, a conglomeration. They're scenarios where you often find yourself in a significant tension. A tension that exists because Jesus is king, and yet you're interacting within a situation where that is not addressed or recognized. Uh, the first is a marketplace scenario. Your team within your work is asked to work together because the company has declared there's going to be a diversity month. As you work with the team and as you receive training on diversity, you discover this isn't just about ethnicity or, or cultures, but it includes every kind of diversity, including sexuality. And you all of a sudden feel a tension, how do I participate in this diversity month with my team? How do I show the love and gentleness of the Lord Jesus, and how do I also show His conviction? How do I remain true to what's taught in the Bible and can also enter into relationship and friendship with those who think very differently than I do. Second scenario. You're at the wedding of extended family. 
and you end up sitting with a cousin you haven't seen for a while. And they engage you in a conversation. They say, if I remember correctly and from what I see on your social media platform, you're a conservative Christian, right? You say, yes. They say, I've done some reading on people like you, knowing I would see you at the wedding. As a matter of fact, there's some websites that explain how conservative Christians think and what they believe. And it was pretty disturbing. It was hard to believe somebody like you, who I've known since we were kids, would actually believe the things that this website says. As a matter of fact, one thing it says is that you actually believe that what you believe is the only true way, that, that what you hold is so exclusive that those who don't believe what you believe won't have what you call eternal life. That would seem to me, they say, like a kind of, I don't know, they say kind of, kind of chagrined, a kind of hater position. Sorry to bring this up at a wedding, but I hardly ever get to meet conservative Christians, they say. Are you a hater? How glad you are that at that moment it, the bride and the bride's father begin the dance for the evening. What do you say on that team? What, what do you do at that wedding reception dinner? And just as importantly, how do you say it? How do you interact? What place do you go within your own emotional spectrum as your heart is beating? Christ the King Sunday, it's the Sunday before we go into the beautiful new church year in the beginning of Advent. Christ the King Sunday is the last Sunday, what's called Ordinary Time. It's a relatively new feast. It's about 100 years old. And Christ the King Sunday proclaims many things, but one thing it proclaims is that Jesus is king over all. It proclaims, as in the words of Acts chapter 17, that there is another king. And while I'm not going to prescribe to you exact ways in which you should respond in one of these scenarios, I do want to teach you about the way in which the kingship of Jesus, rightly and biblically understood, gives you in those moments great freedom. It doesn't mean it may not release the tensions that are there. It doesn't mean that it may not create even an, unnecess- an unhoped-for offense. But it does mean that if we know our King and we know the freedoms that are central to being subjects to this King, I think we're prepared for the various scenarios that you and I have already experienced. Let me also say this, knowing you all. I think and assume that you are the kind of folks that when you end up in a scenario like that, you so want to be faithful to the Lord. That's my assumption about you. You're in the social dynamic that is agonizing. You don't know exactly what to do, but I believe you want to be faithful to Jesus in that moment. I hope this teaching helps you for those moments that will come for all of us. Verses 1 to 4 we come to know our king. That's my first main point, is knowing our king, knowing this other king. Verses 5 to 8, we know our freedoms within the reign of our king, under the rule of our king, under the authority of our king. 
let's know this king. Let's, let's look at this. What's happening here? What we have is Paul. Paul was trained by the great rabbis of the day, and he really ministers within what we call a kind of rabbinical tradition, which is also to say that when he travels to different cities and he travels around, when he travels to different cities, it would not be uncommon for him to be invited to the synagogue, to the meeting place where the scriptures will be taught. And as he goes here to Thessalonica, he's been invited to the synagogue. Thessalonica would be a city where there would be a strong Jewish community, but there would also be many non-Jews. They might be referred to as Greeks because their heritage is Greek, or they might be referred to as Greeks because they're, they're non-Jewish people, but they have an interest in the things of God, and they're gathering to hear these teachers. And Paul would be invited. It looks like he was there for three Sabbaths, so you can see him as having a three-part series where he's going to be teaching for the next three weeks on the things of God. And what Paul's going to do, look at verse 2 together. It's going to reason with them from the Scriptures. To know our King is to know Him by the Scriptures. Indeed, we will not know the fullness of the kingship of Jesus, the singularity of the kingship of Jesus, the utter and yet baffling uniqueness of the the kingship of Jesus, unless we know him by and through the scriptures. His kingship is so unique. It's so different. We can only know it by revelation. And revelation is given to us in the power of the word of God. Oh, we can by his galaxies, as we sang this morning, have a sense of his majesty. We can by creation have a sense of rejoicing that there is a God and he has done great things. But it is in scripture that we are actually come to know personally the fullness of God and his kingship. So Paul takes them to scriptures. These were folks that knew the scriptures. These were folks that had a love for God and had centuries of faithfulness to the reality of God. And yet they too must be brought to the scriptures. This is why we bring the scriptures every week when we gather together as the people of God. And why we encourage people to read their scriptures every day because we need constant breaking in from outside into our lives, into the reality of our sin natures to teach us the things of God. Only by revelation can we know these things. Father John Baer is an Eastern Orthodox theologian. In a beautiful book, The Mystery of Christ, he makes the the sound point, but it, it caught me the first time I read it, that there were those who followed Jesus for three years. They were as close to Jesus as being with him every single day. They camped with him. They traveled with him. They heard all of his teachings. And yet they, when they met him resurrected, did not recognize him. They did not know him. It's a bafflement to all of us. How can we not know the resurrected Jesus? And yet, Father Barry takes us to Luke chapter 23, where Jesus is with those who had followed him. He is resurrected. He's walking with them on the road to Amazus, Luke 20, 23. But they do not recognize him. They do not know who he is. And Jesus begins to teach them. And he says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. The scriptures teach of me. They tell you of me. I've been prophesied in my kingship for centuries to prepare you. Then he says in verse 26, and and listen to this because you're going to hear it again in the writer of Acts, Luke's rendition of what Paul was teaching. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures 
the things concerning himself. It was necessary, Luke 23. And we read that Paul, in verse 3 of Acts 17, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. This has to be taught and revealed to us because there is no way to understand how an infant born in a small town in Nazareth, in Bethlehem, and we raised in Nazareth, how this infant could ever truly be a king, how this infant who would die and rise again could ever truly be a king. It's necessary that these things are taught from the Scriptures and that we have these Scriptures. Which is to say what? That when you're in that moment, in that meeting, or at that reception, wedding reception, that you should pull out your Bible and read from it? Maybe. There's a lot of power here. Or it is to say at least you should in your heart go to the Scriptures in that moment, trust the Scriptures, and find a way to share from the reality of the Scriptures. For there is great revelation. And then you're not doing the work to convince or persuade. You're doing what Paul was doing, reasoning, teaching. What did Paul teach? We don't know for sure. Maybe he taught from Psalm 2, verse 2. It speaks of the Father and His anointed one, the Lord and His anointed one. Anointed one is translated Christ in the Greek language, Messiah in the Hebrew language. When we say Jesus Christ, we're not saying first and last name. We're saying Jesus Messiah, Jesus anointed one, Jesus King. Psalm 2. Maybe he's teaching from Jeremiah 23 that was read for us today about the long succession of those who don't lead faithfully, who don't lead well, and that God will raise up a king unlike any other king. Maybe he was teaching from Isaiah 53 so they could begin to understand the utterly and amazing and singular reality of this king in Isaiah 53 who's called a suffering servant. That this is the kind of king. And in this suffering servant, Isaiah 53, it will be necessary for him to die and rise again. But whatever he taught, he was teaching the singularity of Jesus, that we will know his kingship by the scriptures and we will know them also by his singularity. He who suffered and rose from the dead. I know it's hard. Because it happens to me too. That when I hear preaching or I read my Bible regularly, daily, and I read about the death and resurrection of Jesus, I go, oh, I know that's important. And yes, it's true. Check it. Yep, that's true. But I don't always read it and shake. I don't always read it and realize that I'm in the presence of a truth, that if it is true, and I believe it is true, it, it, is, it is so overcoming of all realities that I'm, I'm but a subject of one greater than can even be articulated. I actually have to hear from those outside of the Christian way, outside the way of Jesus to help me understand just how radical it is. I recently heard a remarkable interview with a British secular historian named Tom Holland. He wrote a book called Dominion where he writes about ancient Near East, and he writes about this era, and then he writes about Jesus. He writes about the rise of the Christian way, and in writing about this as a secular historian, he found himself utterly and completely blown away 
by the claims of Jesus. He's being interviewed by someone else, and he says, he said, if you're a Christian, then you believe, he said to this interviewer, who I, I assume was a Christian, you believe the very fabric of the cosmos was ruptured. He said, you believe the weirdest of things, he said. And I would say to you, preach the weird, he says. He said, what you believe, do you understand? He said, it's more than supernatural. That's not the right way to describe this. He said, it's a massive singularity at the heart of all that ever has been. You believe in a massive singularity, his exact quote, at the heart of all that has ever been, and it has turned everything on its head. It's turned everything upside down. I doubt he knows the reference. He says, the weird thing for me, he said, about the weird things you've been given, he said, is that you seem deeply embarrassed about them. And, quoting him, deeply anxious. Why are Christians so anxious about this, he said. He said, look, preach it, proclaim it. He's English. He concludes by saying, I don't care what a bishop thinks about Brexit or other soft left liberal ideas. I think bishops and others should care about the massive singularity at the heart of all that is. It's helpful to hear from outside, isn't it? We need folks like Dr. Holland to help us know our king. Jesus' singularity is like a cross-shaped, massive supermagnet. And it creates the most intensive force, magnetic force, and it's drawing all things toward itself. But rather than as they were saying, the Christians have turned the world upside down, the cross is turning the world upside down. Rather than understand that, actually what's happening is the cross is right side up. The kingship of Jesus is right side up. It's strong and powerful, and it's drawing everything toward the reality of his kingship. And as things come into that magnetic force, they either allow themselves to be flipped right side up toward the cross, because everything actually in the world and in our own souls is upside down. And so what happens is you're drawn toward the reality of Jesus' kingship and the singularity, the massive singularity, is you'll fear yourself being pulled like this, boom, toward the cross, where you match up with the cross in your own life, your own thinking, your own practices, or like in a magnetic field. You won't let yourself flip. It's trying to flip you, but you won't let yourself flip, and boom, it pushes you out. For a strong magnetic field draws forward, and a strong magnetic field pushes out. It's not Christianity that's upside down. It's not Jesus' kingship that's upside down. It's right side up. It's cross-shaped. And his kingship is so singular and powerful and massive, it's pulling everything toward that reality. But it'll flip you. It'll flip your thinking. It'll flip your affections. It'll flip your choices. It'll flip entire cultures. It'll flip entire authority structures. 
And it's so powerful and so forceful, you don't have to apply any extra force. You don't have to push anything. Indeed, you can just trust in the force of his kingship. That doesn't mean we don't proclaim his kingship with boldness or freedom, but it means that we don't have to push it. We, we can be in that moment, in that team meeting, or in that moment at that wedding, and we could just speak what's true of the scriptures because we know how powerful they are. We know that they're the introduction to the magnetic force field. And in doing so, we have a freedom. The first freedom we see displayed in Paul, and what is one to be imitated here, is he is non-anxious. What you'll see in Paul is that he's not embarrassed by Jesus' singularity. And if anybody had reason to be embarrassed, he, a great rabbi, a previous persecutor or the follower of the way of Jesus, would have reason to be embarrassed. But he's been flipped right side up. He knows that Jesus is king. He's seen the flipping that happens. The charge that's brought against the followers of Jesus is that they are somehow threatening the imperial position of Caesar. We don't know exactly what the details of that charge is, is that they were predicting that Jesus would replace Caesar. Is that what was being construed or, or thought? We don't exactly know the nature of the details of that charge. But what we do know is that Jesus came with a kingship actually far more powerful than Caesar, so much so that he wasn't anxious about Caesar. He said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, give to God what's God's. And in that is a profoundly and wholly subversive statement. Give Caesar the little bit that he needs. That's just money. He's saying, give your life to God. Flip! Paul knew as well that, as everyone would have known, that over the cross of Jesus, that great magnetic field, would have been a statement that will be known eternally now, commanded to be put there by Pontius Pilate, a Roman leader, this is the king of the Jews. It's possible that Pilate meant that as revenge. It's possible what was happening in that moment is he felt like his hand was being forced by the Jewish leaders. He's being forced to execute someone as a criminal that he is convinced is not a criminal. And in that moment, he finds a kind of passive-aggressive way to get significant revenge, to bring shame on the Jewish people by saying, you want a king? This is your king, an executed, disrespected, held in ill repute criminal. This is your king. But in Pilate's revenge is our revelation. Amen? Oh, he is the king of the Jews. He's the king of the Gentiles. Indeed, what we understand about his kingship is not vis-a-vis Caesar or even vis-a-vis this reality. We understand that the, the reality of his kingship is given to us fully and completely in Revelation chapter 19. When Jesus' singular kingship will be absolutely revealed for all to know and see. This is a kingship unlike any other kingship. We will see the heavens open as John did in Revelation 19. And even as Advent, as we go waiting for the second coming of Jesus, we will behold a white horse, and the one sitting on it will be called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war, John writes in Revelation. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. 
He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings, Lord of lords. That's the kingship revealed in the scriptures. And because of that, Paul's free to have what Dr. Edwin Friedman calls a non-anxious presence. Go back to Acts 17. Look at Paul. Dr. Edwin Friedman, in Failure of Nerve, writes about the importance of having a non-anxious presence. And, and we see this in Paul. It's a great phrase for how we see Paul. Who's anxious in Acts 17? Take a look at this. Paul, we read, he's reasoning. In verse 3, he's explaining and he's proving. He's there as a guest. He's been invited to teach these things. He hasn't forced this on anybody. He hasn't had anybody at sword point saying, you must believe that Yeshua is Messiah. He's not doing that at all. He's reasoning as a guest within the synagogue. But the Jewish leaders, they're actually what? They're jealous. They're anxious. They're actually getting wicked men of the rabble. And then we read, they form a mob. They set the city in an uproar. And they attack the house of Jason. Who's upside down? Who's worked up? Who's anxious? Is it the followers of Jesus? Is it the followers of Jesus bringing riot and bringing anarchy? No. No. Because they know that there's a super magnet of Jesus' kingship, and it's flipping all things toward Jesus and his power and his reality as king. So they're actually reasoning and explaining. And some of them, we read, were persuaded, which is exactly what happens when we trust in the kingship of Jesus and the scriptures and his singularity, and we refuse to be embarrassed by his singularity, is some will be persuaded. This non-anxious presence does have to do with how you interact within the larger culture and world, which we all do. It can also be personal to you. Jesus' kingship can have a very personal application for you in your life. I'm seeking this application right now in my own life, this non-anxious presence. Some of you know I, I fell very ill last year while preaching in Nigeria. Uh, we know in retrospect uh, medically that I came very close to dying on an airplane, making my way back from Nigeria to Chicago. And with the change of seasons and all of a sudden it became November, it caught me off guard, but it was November when I, I had this crisis. And it's been very hard not to be very anxious. Well, had so much distance. I was so glad for that distance over the last year. It's all of a sudden become very present again. So Paul's non-anxious presence is ministering to me. I still wanted to minister to you. Maybe you're coming up to an anniversary of a loss that's very significant, or you're in the midst of, of losing your health or your financial stability. I, I don't know what's happening, but I, I want you also to be clear that Jesus' kingship 
It's for you. It's for me. We, we can trust in it. It's a massive singularity. And in that, not only are we free to be non-anxious, but finally, we're free to be non-conforming. We're so conformed to our king and to the teachings of the scriptures. We're so conformed there that we're free to be non-conforming within larger realities, and there are many realities in which we will often appear to be non-conforming. We may not be understood. We may seem even inconsistent in our particular positions as viewed by others because we're seeking only one consistency to the kingship, the beautiful magnetic field of his kingship. When I think about how this nonconformity is actually a deep and profound conformity, but appears nonconformity, I can't help but think of a great hero, an Anglican hero, the evangelical Anglican William Wilberforce, the 17th and 18th centuries. Wilberforce was called to the public square. He was, a, he was involved in parliament as a key leader. And Wilberforce held an array of perspectives that from the outside might have looked inconsistent and wasn't lined up with a particular political party. He was a conservative, but not his positions lined up there. And while others followers you just might have argued with him about his perspectives, what they couldn't have argued was that every perspective he held came from his understanding of Scripture and how the church had taught Scripture. So as you may know, his most famous position, thanks be to God, is he gave his life for the abolition of chattel of chained slavery and the slave trade. What you may also not know is that he fought for chimney sweeps, that they would have fair wages. He fought for better housing conditions for the poor. He fought for education reform. He had a passion to see dueling and his destructiveness completely outlawed. He believed in deeply restricting capital punishment. He had an incredible love for the Jewish people and fought for a homeland for them. He, he had a widespread perspective on many things. He seemed to be one who couldn't fit in easily to a category unless you knew the revelation of Scripture and how he understood them. We don't conform to a certain political party as believers. We don't conform to a certain way of understanding even marketplace realities. We, we don't conform to a certain way of thinking about art except that in all those things we seek to conform to our king. As we understand him revealed in Holy Scripture, as we understand Jesus, one of massive singularity in his cross and resurrection, who has written upon his robe and his thigh the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.